0: And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, about 225 miles from Antioch, which was in Syria, to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now he's quoting Amos, an Old Testament prophet. Trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in this synagogue. Lord, Lord, come by your spirit and move us. May your spirit be that wind that lifts us out of our daily word work that focuses our mind, that convicts our heart and gives us hope in Jesus, the only way of salvation. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, Desi and I took a ride up to Lake Worth, Florida, right near Boynton Beach, to visit the South Florida National Cemetery. The Department of Veterans Affairs operates about 147 of these national cemeteries throughout the U.S. in order to offer a resting place for those servicemen and women who have served their country with honor. We were there to plan for my burial. (laughs) It was an interesting exercise. (laughs) I mean, you know, you walk in and you inform these people that you want to be buried here and could you kind of look around? I think I said something like, hi... I'm thinking of making this my final resting place. I'd like to check it out. Actually, many veterans, and it it is a a service to the veterans and it's a financial blessing, many veterans uh, visit National Cemetery to discuss just these kind of matters. Now, the very most famous National Cemetery, you might be thinking, is in Arlington, Virginia. And if you were thinking that, you would be right. Arlington National Cemetery has one very special gravesite. Actually, it's a marble tomb. That is, of course, the tomb of the unknown soldier, which you see here on the slide. This tomb seeks to honor the memory of every serviceman or woman who has died in combat and whose body was never recovered. It is guarded by the very best of the U.S. Army's 3rd Infantry. To be eligible to apply for duty as a sentinel, one must be rigorously examined and qualified. There have been only 400 soldiers in the last 45 years to earn the distinctive tomb guard badge. These sentinels guard the tomb 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Several years ago... Because of the dangers of Hurricane Isabel approaching the Washington, D.C. area, the military members assigned the duty of guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier were given permission to suspend the assignment. They refused. No, sir, they responded. Soaked to the skin, marching in the pelting rain and high winds of a powerful storm, they said that guarding the tomb was not just an assignment. It was the highest honor That can be afforded to a service person. They represented a nation's gratitude to those who paid the ultimate price in defending it. The tomb of the unknown soldier represents the sacrifice upon which our nation and its freedom was built, and so it must be guarded. This morning, God is calling us to guard a far greater sacrifice. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins, upon which our freedom, our life is based. This sacrifice of what we call the gospel is Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return in glory. They represent our identity as Christians, the foundation of who we are, the foundation of our acceptance by God. The foundation of our experience, our forgiveness in Christ and our new life and the power of the Spirit. Friends, this text, God is speaking to us. We must guard this gospel 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Not because the gospel itself needs our help. No. The gospel doesn't need our guarding. The gospel actually guards us. But for that reason, We must be vigilant and guard it. I mean, the gospel isn't weak. No, the gospel is the power of God. If you're the power of God, you're the ultimate power. It's the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's us, Gentiles. But we must guard the gospel's effect, the gospel's influence in our hearts, in our minds, in our community. See, our minds, the doctrine of the gospel, our hearts, the functionality of the gospel, and our community, our church, and the people to whom we share the gospel, they need the pure and powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must work to guard it as it guards us. We must work to guard it as it guards us. God's burden for us in this text. What the Lord Jesus is saying to us as his church right now Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, power of the Holy Spirit illuminating this word, illuminating your mind, capturing your thoughts, your passions, your heart, fully engaging you. Here is what God would say to you guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. That is the message here in this text. Guard the gospel, guard it in your minds. Doctrinally, Guard it in your hearts functionally. And guard it in our community as we build the church and make disciples. Those are the three points of the text that you see here on the screen. Guard the gospel, first of all, in our minds doctrinally. You have to know the gospel. That's why I want you to pay attention this morning. Are you aware of the facts of the gospel? But even being aware of the facts of the gospel, you must guard it functionally. It's got to work in my life every day. How does that happen? And we must guard it in the church, in our community, as we build the church that we're building on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will judge us on how we built. There's only one foundation, and that is Jesus and Him crucified. Raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and soon returning. And then we must guard the, the gospel as we make disciples. I once heard someone say this, that... That when you're reaching out to the lost, what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you're winning people with fluff and stuff and God will just meet all your needs and the gospel is distant, the cross, the blood, the wrath of God, the need of man, the initiation of God, those are just distant thunder echoes that you really don't want to bring up initially. You're just winning them with, with, with fluff. That's what you win them to we must win them with the gospel because that is the power of God for salvation. Now, and let me just let me just try to tease this out a little bit as we get into the sermon so that you can relate to what I'm saying here. So, when I say guard the gospel in our minds doctrinally, here's the question I have for you. Do you know the gospel? That is to say, do you know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, why he came, who he is, what he did and how that affects our relationship with God. I ask folks all the time in the membership interviews to describe the gospel and they struggle to do so. I ask them all the time, what is their assurance that they have that God accepts them as his people? That they are saved, that they will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And often their answers are mixed with faith in Jesus, but, but invariably they, they, they wanna, their impulse is to add something. We come from a Catholic background, most of us. There's something about that. We just have to do something. You can't just ask for forgiveness. You have to do penance, don't you? Doesn't the Bible say that? I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I once had someone say, well, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? <laughs> I said, no, I think you're confusing tradition with the Bible. Right? But, but our tradition is that way. And by the way, the human heart's inclined that way. I got to add something to God. People will answer me, yes, faith in Jesus, but you know what? I'll tell God that I've tried really hard, that I've done really well, that I've stopped doing this and this and this. Hey, that I'm attending church. Hey, I'm in this interview. I even give to the church. See, all those answers reveal what? A deficiency in doctrinally understanding the gospel. The question on the table in this text that we are studying is how is one saved? What is the gospel? And specifically, how are Gentiles saved? Stay tuned for the answer from this text. And also we need to guard the gospel functionally. So there are many of you, maybe most of you right now this morning, you would get this answer right. If I asked you, how are Gentiles saved? Man, you would launch into this wonderful articulation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You know, in case you missed it, we sang about that this morning. Some of you are like, what was that word? (laughs) And you could just give me every passage that speaks to regeneration. That is the spirit making us alive from the dead. Man, you could wax eloquent on the justification by faith alone in Christ alone. You take me to every text. But now here's the question, and I'm glad you can do that. I want you to be able to do that. But here's the question. Is the gospel functioning in our lives? Or do we subtly act as if Jesus plus our good works gains us a little something extra with God. Actually gains, him, gains us his acceptance. Do we function on the good day, bad day scenario? You know, that scenario when you're having a good day, when you're obedient in most things, when your attitude is basically good, when you're gracious on the road, when you've said no to that sin in your life that often gets you, you feel closer to God. You're more ready to approach him. You're more confident that he's going to hear your prayers and maybe even answer them. But when we have the bad day, we yell at our family as we're leaving the house. We drive like demons in traffic, cutting everybody off. We think only of ourselves. We doubt and worry and complain against God. We do that very thing we said we weren't going to do anymore. Promise God we wouldn't. And we don't do the things that we said we would do. We somehow feel a little further away from God. We have no confidence to approach God and we have no confidence he's going to hear our prayers. We are inward, grumpy, sad Christians ever feeling condemned and condemning others. See, we know the gospel, but it's not really functioning Friends, if this describes us, then we are not guarding the gospel in our hearts functionally. The gospel would be in our heads doctrinally, but it is not in our hearts functionally. We simply are not living by the gospel at all. It reminds me of a quote by Jerry Bridges. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So your worst day is never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best day is never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And if we truly live by grace, truly live by grace and the gospel, we will get that. But if we tend to smuggle our good works in We won't. We won't. Where are you in your daily life? And then we've got to guard the gospel in our community. This is how we build the church is the gospel. There's no other way. There's no other way to build a healthy church. You might be able to build a larger church, faster with more people, but when God evaluates it, is it a healthy church? And there's the only way to make disciples. You can't just offer someone heaven Everything they ever want. Because then they just replace Christianity as another idol in their life. They use it to get what they want. The better life, a fulfilled life. Your best life now, tomorrow, next week. Who knows? Who cares? It's, it's, it's a lie. It's the gospel that confronts us. It's the gospel that brings us to our knees. It's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. So, So, the gospel guards us and we must guard the gospel in our minds doctrinally in our hearts functionally and in our community as we build Palm Vista and as we make disciples and guarding the gospel is what is at stake in this text this morning see the question on the table is whether the gospel is enough to save the gentiles and make them part of god's people i mean that's the driving question here how are gentiles saved how do they become god's people do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved and accepted as God's people huge question gospel question but before we move to that question in this text I have to ask you this question are you saved are you part of God's people and if so how did that happen how are we saved how do we become part of God's people? So let's look at the text. Look at verse 1. The question gets thrown down like a gauntlet. These guys from Judea and Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, these are not Jews that don't know Jesus. They know Jesus. They make the 225 mile trek about from here to Disney World. Uh, to confront the church in Antioch, filled with Gentile Christians, and they, they, they knock on the door, they walk in and look at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, now, this is what they said. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Friends, they immediately introduced dissension, Debate, look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, they, they, they immediately separated the church. Do you know that probably these men and their teaching influenced both Peter and Barnabas to stop having table fellowship with Gentile Christians? Well, we find this in Galatians 2 11 to 14. Passage should be on the, on the screen there. This is Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, nearby Syria. Listen to what he says. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, many people feel like it happened right before the section they were reading in Acts 15, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, certain men coming from James are these guys coming from Judea and Jerusalem, He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, friend, is your life in step with the truth of the gospel? Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Listen, Peter knew the gospel. He had been preaching it. Peter was the guy that preached that Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter was the guy that preached all the early messages in Acts. It wasn't that he didn't know the gospel. He didn't let it functionally control how he lived. His life was not in step with the truth of the gospel, verse 14. I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, quote, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Is your life in step with the truth of the gospel, friend? See, these guys were dividing the church along Jewish and Greek lines. And Paul and Barnabas would have none of it. Now, let me just gladly tell you, I believe that this rebuke by Paul, actually this wonderful, the the wounds of a friend are good. When a friend rebukes you and he does it in the right way with the Lord helping them, in the spirit of the Lord, in spirit of truth and love, it helps you. Because I believe that when Paul confronted these guys, they changed. You know why I believe that? Because look at verse 2 of Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. Paul and Barnabas. So, so Barnabas heard Paul's teaching and said, You're right, Paul. We're having none of it. We are going to challenge these guys about what constitutes true conversion and what makes one a bona fide member of God's people. So, what is true conversion? And what makes one a bona fide member of God's people? Is it faith in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, exaltation, as Israel's Messiah and our Savior? Or is it that plus circumcision? If you're a Gentile, you've got to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. Circumcision. Like, you're crazy. But not only because of the physical act, but... Because you're going to take me back to the law? Is that true? I mean, these guys threw the church in a turmoil. So what does the church do? They decide to send Paul, Barnabas, and some others to Jerusalem. And they they want to ask the apostles. They want to say, hey, is it true? How are Gentiles saved? So look at verse 4. They arrive in Jerusalem, and they're welcomed by the church and the apostles, and the elders, and they declare all that God had done with them. The first thing Paul and Barnabas do is they recount what God had done with them, through them. How God had initiated the salvation of many Gentiles throughout Syria and Phoenicia and Pamphylia and Galatia, modern-day Syria and Turkey. And Paul certainly communicated at that point the truth that salvation is initiated by God. I mean, he knew that. God knocked him off his donkey. And thus, only God can define who is saved. Only God can say what is required for salvation. No tradition of man can. God moves men to conversion. I'm sure Paul was preaching and thundering. He does it by his spirit, working in the hearts of men to repent and believe on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And let me tell you what he did in Galatians, Samaria, and Phoenicia During our two-year missionary trip. But look at verse 5. There's a group of of Christians that were not impressed. Look at verse 5. But some believers, note their believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, just like Paul. They had been Pharisees, but they'd been saved. Rose up and said, quote, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I just want you to notice the difference between these guys and the guys up in in verse 3 in Phoenicia and Samaria. Look at verse 3. When when Paul and Barnabas passed through Phoenicia and Samaria and they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and it brought great joy to all the brothers. In opposition to the great joy that it brought to all the brothers, these people, these Pharisees are upset they're saying, if you, don't add the God, if you don't add circumcision and the law, they're not saved. James, tell them. James, you, you, you don't let these guys get away with this. It is not just Jesus. It is Jesus plus the law. And so, verse 6, they convene what some call the apostolic council. You could call it the apostolic council in Jerusalem or the Jerusalem council. But the apostles convened this council to consider this matter. Are Gentiles saved by faith alone in Christ alone? Or must they add circumcision in the law to be saved? And after much debate, Peter stands up in verse 7. Now, you would think that Peter might agree with the Judaizers, with these Pharisees, right? Because what did it say in Galatians 2? For a season... He stopped having table fellowship with the Gentiles, but oh no, I believe that Paul's rebuke changed Peter, that God used Paul to bring Peter to his senses, because listen to what Peter thunders. Listen to what he thunders in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And believe. Oh, friends, what Peter says, he immediately says, God chose this. Do you see the pattern? God initiated it. God initiated it. God initiated it. He chose me to go preach the word of the gospel. That description in verse 7, the word of the gospel at the end of verse 7, what that's describing is the good news that God grants salvation to sinners on the account of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And of course, Peter is referring to when he did this to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And how God then, look at verse 8, bore witness. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Guys, what are we talking about here? God did not make Cornelius get circumcised before he gave him the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He cleansed them from all sin. He made them part of God's people through Jesus alone. And then Peter announces this wonderful doctrine. Verse 9. This is a key doctrine, friends. Read it with me in your text. Peter declares, And he, God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Eckhart Schnabel says it this way in the quote on the screen. God cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles by removing the impurity of the Gentile sinners. Forgiving their sins and granting them purity. Such purity and thus salvation and membership in God's people demands Uh, depends on faith. Faith in Jesus as crucified and risen Messiah and Savior and not on circumcision and submission to the Mosaic law. Listen, Peter in verse 9 says, this is how they're saved. And Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is where we're going to apply this in just a moment. But look what Peter says in verse 10. Now therefore... If God chose them, God blessed them, God saved them, God included them, God gave them the Holy Spirit like he gave us. Verse 10, hey guys, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See, Peter warns them, don't put God to the test here, friends. Stop doubting the revelation that we've had already by the Spirit, God's initiation. You've heard my testimony. You've heard Paul's testimony and the mouth of two or three witnesses. God is doing this. He's saving them by faith alone in Christ alone. He's given them His Spirit. There's whole churches existing in Galatia and Phoenicia and Syria. Remember Cornelius? But you won't believe it. You are testing God like Israel tested God in the wilderness. I don't believe you, God. I've seen your good works, but I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to believe you. That's testing God. Don't do that, church. Here's the point of application, my dear friends. Are we guilty of testing God in this matter? Do we fail to believe that we are cleansed solely by the blood of Jesus, that we're made... Members of the body of Christ solely by what Jesus has done? Talking justification here. Do we subtly try to smuggle our good works into the equation to add them to Christ's good works in order to gain acceptance by God? This is the definition of self-righteousness, friends. And it tests God. Not only does it test God, but it makes us hypocrites. Like it made Peter a hypocrite. Remember Galatians 2, to 14? Twice the word hypocrite or hypocrisy is in there. It makes us hypocrites. Whose functional gospel, and it's no gospel at all, adds our good works to the good work of Christ in order to be justified or come to God. It produces Christians, hypocritical Christians who are judgmental, who are blind to their own sin. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, oh, you blind guides of the blind. These poor Pharisees. Self-righteousness, friends, blinds you. It blinds you to Christ's righteousness. It blinds you to your own sin. It blinds you to the evidences of grace. It makes you a critical person who feels superior. I'm not going to eat with those Gentile Christians because the guys from James are here. And we know we Jews are better because we're circumcised. We keep the law of Moses. Oh, really? Um, Is your heart circumcised, brother? Did you keep every law? How's that worked out for you the last 1,500 years as a nation? But I'm better than them. And, and, it, and it creates Christians who are hypocritical and stuffy and grumpy and sad and condemned. Who regularly exclude some because of, based on some outward appearance or some outward practice. And it causes them to, to judge others with little or no mercy. Let us all be warned. Oh friends, let us be warned. And may we repent of functionally displacing the gospel in our lives. By thinking that our good works can add anything to Christ's in justification. Let us believe that Jesus is our righteousness and work to guard the functionality of the gospel in our lives, our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, and the life of our church and in the evangelism to the world. Now, let me give you an illustration of my hypocrisy. I don't know if you remember how last week I stumbled through an illustration. It was about the His House Children's Outreach three weeks ago. It was obvious I didn't know many of the details. (laughs) So here's the hypocrisy. While many of you attended, and you told us, and really the report was, it was amazing, it was wonderful. I didn't. I never intended to. I didn't really pay attention about the details of the event. Well, here's my hypocrisy. When I plan something, (laughs) I want everybody in the church to come, to own it, to be on time, to care about it as much as I do. I may even get a little bit of an attitude if I sense that's not happening. I want everybody to be informed. (laughs) Informed, you know, informed bulletin. That thing that most of us just go, oh, there's the informed, click. (laughs) Well, here's our youth, led by my son in law, David Bush, who planned it along with my daughter, Melinda. They worked hard, they planned it, they put it on, and I didn't really know the details. What a hypocrite. I'm giving myself a pass when I get a little irritated when other people do that to things I plan, but I don't get involved. And I'm the pastor. I sat on the sidelines and you know quite frankly I've been doing that for a little while just tired <clears throat> coach take me out I need a little break here God convicted me as I was preparing this message to repent to get back into the game and, and I have called David and Melinda and, and, and actually my wife uh, sent them an email and again my wife sent them an email uh, a while ago <laughs> see this is why I'm a preacher because God just needs to go bam oh that's it <laughs> Uh, and I just saw my hypocrisy. That, that somehow, I, I'm not living with the gospel central. So it blinds me. I, I, I think I am sometimes superior. That's sad. I mean, hope that doesn't shock you. Hope you don't leave going, sure, what's wrong with him? Well, yeah. You know? I have to fight that. I add nothing to the righteousness of Christ that justifies me before God. But there's a voice that says, yeah, maybe you do. And it it turns me into a hypocrite. It blinds me to my own sin. See, the fact is, they, I saw the email to my wife, they were happy. They, they, They weren't bothered that I wasn't there. Why? Because they trusted in Christ for their righteousness. They were just serving him out of joy. And if a lot of people came or no one came, their joy was in the Lord. It wasn't in this event. It wasn't in how successful it was. You know, it, it just, they were living out the gospel in a way that I wasn't. And perhaps they were living out this wonderful quote from Martin Luther. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor sure does. Now, I modified it a little there. I don't think Luther would have said, your neighbor sure does. Puts down his mug of beer, you know. Um, affects me. So friends, let us us take the gospel and just soak in it that God might deliver us from hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Self-righteous, hypocritical Christians, that's not what God wants the world to see. (laughs) Humble, broken Christians who are righteous in Christ and talk about righteousness. That's what he wants to see. Okay, so look at verse 10. Right? Yoke of the law Don't put it on them. Notice the first or second word in verse 11. Right? But. 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 We believe. But we believe. In the text, it's like the car is driving down the street this way. And all of a sudden, like in the movies, they hit the the gas, spin the wheel, and it just goes and flies around. And then, zoom, takes off the other way. So verse 10 and verse 11 are a contrast. You need to note those in scripture. The word but, but rather is a good word for that. So now we're going to go in the right direction. The wrong direction is putting a yoke on people's neck that they can't uh, possibly carry to try to do good works to gain god 's approval, but look at verse 11 here's the gospel. Peter now thunders the gospel, he thunders the gospel he 's repented of his hypocrisy already in antioch he 's come back down to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, the Council of the apostles, he 's able to preach the gospel because his friend Paul showed him how in his eye in peter 's eye, there was hypocrisy, and he wasn't understanding the gospel though he had preached it. it wasn 't functioning. And listen to what he thunders in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Just as they will. He guards the gospel for us, friends. He guards the gospel for us. And then look at verse 12. There's silence. They're stunned. They quite probably were having this meeting in Solomon's portico in the temple. So in the temple, Jewish Christians are arguing about whether Gentiles have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved. I mean, in one sense, that's ludicrous. Like someone's gonna come here and kill shh, they're gonna hear you. What if one of the priests walks by? They don't need to obey the law of Moses. <laughs> I mean, his whole life is obeying the law of Moses. They're in the temple. But fearlessly, he's thundering that. And they're silenced. They're stunned. It seems like the argument's been settled. And listen to what happens in verse 12. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Don't you see it, friends? Don't you see it? We've got these massive sentinels, these men from the 3rd Infantry, dressed in their blues, tough guys, a hurricane can't push them off this tomb. And Paul and Peter are being witnesses in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And they're saying, here's the gospel, and I'm guarding it right now. This is what it is. We are not going to make them be circumcised and we are not going to make them obey the law of Moses to be justified. And they're doing it in the temple most probably. And they're preserving the gospel for us today. In the midst of the storm, they stand strong. The gospel's guarding them and enabling them to guard the gospel. And that is our job. We must fight the winds of whatever wants to replace the gospel with my access to God. Verse 13. James stands up. Paul and Barnabas are done. Peter's done. James stands up. The third witness. I love it. Three witnesses Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. James. I guess that's four. I'm not a mathematician, just a preacher. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, verse 14, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Do you see this theme? God visited the Gentiles. God visited the Gentiles. Did the Gentiles invite God? No, 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 no. God visited them. You don't invite Jesus into your heart. Jesus comes to you. You don't seek God. God seeks you. Here is that God initiative of salvation. Listen, he comes and he visits the Gentiles, what? To take from them a people for his name. Woo, yeah, now we're talking Old Testament. We are talking Abraham on down. We are talking God's purpose in life. We are talking biblical theology. We are talking what God has wanted and is doing. Not wanted, he is. His will is always done. God's plan that was hidden from the beginning. I am taking a people, not just from Israel, but from everybody. Everybody. And then James quotes Amos. 9, 12, 11, and 12. And he does it in Acts 15, 16 through 18. So I I had him put that scripture back up for you because it's so important. I want us to look at it together. So then James says this. After this, I will return. He's quoting now from Amos 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he's reading a messianic prophecy, probably written in about 700 B.C. by Amos. And it's referring to a few things here. First thing it's referring to is that God's going to rebuild the tent of David. What's the tent of David? Well, if you recall, 700 B.C., Israel is already in captivity, the northern ten tribes. And in 580 B.C., 82 B.C., the southern um, tribe, Jude, Judah and Benjamin, will be taken into captivity, Babylonian captivity. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be wiped out. So he's, he's prophesying beyond that to a time when the tent of David, the, 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 the dynasty of David, the rule of David, even the, the temple, the tent of David can even be understood as the temple. The place where God's name is. God's going to rebuild it. And he's going to restore it. You see that in verse 16? Rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So what James is saying is. Don't you see guys? God has restored the tent of David. By saving thousands of Jews. With the true gospel of Jesus and the true Messiah. Jesus who said I'm now the temple. That's not where you meet with God. And they were in the temple solomon's portico you meet with god and me so the new temple is jesus the greater moses is jesus so god's taking and renewing rebuilding his people no longer a physical temple but a spiritual temple the people of god and he's doing it he's been doing it for several years now this is probably 48 bc jesus died and was resurrected 33 bc for 15 years he's been rebuilding the temple and now he's rebuilding the temple what's the next thing the prophecy says is going to happen what does it say Verse 17, what's it say? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from before. I'm rebuilding the tent of David, the temple. It's a spiritual temple. It's an end-time temple. It's called an eschatological end-time. Eschaton, end, ology, study, end-time. It's the end-time temple. And now that it's restored, the Jews first get the gospel. They believe It's a Jewish church. Now I'm adding the Gentiles. Don't you make them go back to Judaism. What? No, Jesus is the new temple. And the new people are Jew and Gentile. Don't you divide them over race. Don't you divide them over anything because I've united them in Christ. And he's still doing that. So then James, to conclude, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Are you crazy? Are you going to make them be circumcised and obey the law? Why are you troubling them with that? It's, that doesn't work. It's over. The new, well, the same plan, but the modern update <laughs> is Christ. Temple's obsolete. Paul doesn't have any problem with circumcision. Later on, he's going to circumcise Timothy. But not for salvation. Not for justification. That's in Jesus. But, verse 20, should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. What's going on here? This is what he's saying. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. So that is settled. That question is settled. Now, how do they become the people of God? Do they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses? And James says no, but he does say, so James is saying they don't have to become a Jew to become a part of God's people. Because now it's a new people, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. But they must now, having been bought by the blood of Jesus, having taken the name of people for his name, the temple was a place where God's name was proclaimed to the nations. God's name was associated with the temple. That's why it was so horrible when the temple was destroyed. (gasps) Where's God? That's where he lives. That's his name. He said, no, no, God's name now is in Jesus. The name above all names. And they bear his name. And so this is what he says to him. It's logical. If you now belong to Jesus, stop belonging to the pagan idolatrous temples you used to belong to. Stop doing the things you used to do as pagans. All four of these things are associated with pagan idolatry. All four of them. If If you read through them, things polluted by idols. They're worshiping idols. Sexual immorality. There were temple prostitutes, male and female. Part of your worship was sex. It was unclean. It's the very thing God said to Israel, stay away from these people. They don't know me. From what has been strangled, and from blood, offerings to temple gods. So he's saying, listen, they are now God's people. They've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They are to be done with idols. They are to be live now for Jesus. As Alan Thompson says in his commentary on Acts, the Jerusalem Council... Therefore, clarifies two issues involved in how Gentiles may be saved. One, Gentiles do not have to become Jews. Salvation for Jew and Gentile alike is by grace, alone, through faith in the Lord Jesus alone. Two, however, 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 however. Gentiles cannot remain pagan idolaters. You cannot come here and say, save me from hell, but I'm going to keep living like I want to. That option is not available to you. Let me disabuse you of that thought. Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all if he's not Lord in your life, your future is very, very bad. However, Gentiles cannot remain pagan idolaters either. They must turn from their pagan idolatrous past. The way for pagan idolatrous Gentiles to be saved is faith in the Lord Jesus and turning from idolatry and repentance. Faith and repentance, guys. And friends, this council was very important in the history of redemption. This council ultimately guarded the gospel and ensured that it came to us unadulterated, with nothing added to faith in Christ alone for salvation and inclusion into the family of God. And God bids us to continue guarding the gospel today. How do we do that? Well, first, we have to understand the gospel. As it is taught in this passage, spend some time today and this week reviewing with Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, these four testimonies, these four witnesses said about how we are saved and how we become part of God's people. And next, go to Galatians 2. Remember, that is where we discovered Peter and Barnabas' hypocrisy and their lack of a functional gospel operating in their lives. And then ask yourself and others Where there is hypocrisy in your life. Where you've been adding to the gospel. I did that for this sermon and my family helped me to see mine in specific areas. In the area I just shared. We guard the gospel in the details of our lives. Change comes in the details, folks. When you see the areas where you've tried to add your righteousness to Christ's righteousness, repent of that self-righteousness. And finally, I suggest that you memorize Galatians 2, 15-21. It is a great declaration of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Work at it. It's a great passage. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth. Paul now writing to the churches in Galatia, the churches that he founded, that the Spirit founded on his first missionary journey. Lystra, Iconium, Derbe. He's writing to them. They're under this false teaching, or some of them are, that you have to add circumcision to faith in Jesus to be saved. And Paul is addressing it in their lives like he did to Peter and Barnabas. And he writes, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Has he said that enough in those, th- those verses? I mean, he's pounding the pulpit right now. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified. Oh, these verses here, 20 to 21. If nothing else, memorize these. I'd say memorize the whole thing, but if you can only memorize two, memorize these two. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Do you live your life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God? Or do you live it by faith in your own ability and your own good works? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, verse 21 is a serious warning. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, oh. May may our lives never preach that. But self-righteous, hypercritical, uptight Christians can inadvertently communicate that in their superiority. Repent of testing God by nullifying the grace of God in any way of your life, by thinking that your good works count for anything when it comes to justification. We must guard the gospel. We must stand watch every day in our lives with our brothers and sisters, not because the gospel needs to be guarded or defended, but because we need to be guarded. And it guards our wayward souls, so let's guard it with all vigilance in our minds doctrinally, in our hearts functionally, and in our community as we build Palm Vista and make disciples with the gospel. Let's pray.